When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And she goes, you're coming in at all these weird hours. Are you, you're doing the drugs? And I was like, no, 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 I'm doing stand-up comedy. And I think at that point she would have rather me say I was doing drugs because she could have put me in intervention or she could have put me in rehab because there is no rehab for comedy. Hi, I'm Eric Rivera. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're speaking with comedian Eric Rivera. You've probably seen his HBO comedy special, Super White, and probably all over the comedy scene. You know, I love talking to comedians, Sharon, because yes, they're funny, but you can go deep really fast with them. They have been our deepest guests in many ways. And Eric was, Eric was fantastic. I really enjoyed our conversation with him. I feel like I immediately connected with him just from literally like the first story he told us was about the college that he went to, which happened to be right across the street from where I grew up. So a lot of the stories that he told about how he got into comedy, which ironically happened around the time of September 11th. And as he was telling the story of the city and that downtown area at the time, it it sort of just awakened a lot of my memories of Yeah, because you were here. I mean, you're from I was here. Yeah, I was literally, I saw it outside my bedroom window like literally blocks away from the World Trade Center. And I find it ironic that he kind of came into this profession of comedy at a very somber time in the city. Well, and because what he said was the clubs were filling up and selling out because people needed it back then. Yeah. And as a college kid, he was like, all right, I want to try to fill a room. And he wasn't a comedian at the time, but that's when, I think that's when he got the bug. Yeah, and he talks a lot about representation and how important that is and even how much the landscape has changed, right? From like 2001 or whenever he had first kind of caught that bug to now, which is only about 20 years later, really how much diversity has sort of changed and, and the, the types of comedians that we think about, the types of comedians that we tend to relate to. I think one thing that stood out a lot to me was he talks about how a lot of comedy clubs tend to have theme nights. And yeah, so we're something. not as far along as we think we are, right? And right. I found out that you would be going to Sticky Rice Night, Sharon. I would, apparently. <laughs> and he was, what did he say about his first listing? It was with, he had mentioned, it wasn't like a sombrero, but it was like tortilla night or something like that. Like he had also mentioned a couple of things about his own, one of his yeah, own Yeah, it's just like listings. you get this like groan of, ah, you know, every time you think, look, to be very clear, we're nowhere near where we should be in society, but... It's like, yeah, we're pretty far along. And then you hear about crap like quesadilla night, sticky rice night at the clubs. And 
I guess not. And but what I love is he's he's pushing back on that pretty hard, right? When he was offered the opportunity to kind of to run a night like that, he was like, I'm going to do it on my terms and yeah. we have to change the tenor of the language. Yeah. And it, it just, what I really appreciate about Eric's sensibility is like, he is very conscious of our responsibility in the culture, not just from a representation standpoint, but there's, he goes back to like the kid who saw John Leguizamo and the impact that had on him. Hmm. And, you know, or his kid, God, like when he talked about his kids watching Coco, I was like, oh man, like, you know, We've all had kind of those sort of moments when you see yourself. Yeah. And he, I think what he didn't talk about this, but this is what I listened to as he was telling us his story is he comes from a family where his mom is very traditional, wanting to preserve the language, the culture, really, you know, wanting the kids to learn Spanish and, and to speak that at home. And his dad was always more wanting to push them to be more Americanized, you know, being open to other types of experiences. And I think that push-pull as he was growing up also kind of helped to shape a lot of the decisions that he's made as an adult in this world. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> the one thing I totally related to is him being out and about and his mom thinking he was on the drugs. <laughs> I have had my mom tell me that before. I'm like, mom, I'm the I'm the lamest kid ever. I am not on the Wait, drugs. Wait, <laughs> your mom really thought you were on drugs? No, on the drugs. On the drugs, yeah, no, she, she. You've been accused of being on the drugs. You, yeah, I'm. You don't. I mean, you know what a loser I am, Sharon. Like, I, I, I would have. Yeah, I never. You would have been the last kid I would have pegged as being on the drugs. Hey, you know that's what happens when you go over to your friend's house and you talk about comic books and you play penny poker all night. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, you're on the drugs. <laughs> but look, I think you're going to really enjoy a, a really deep and winding conversation on the culture with our friend Eric. Enjoy. Today we're talking to Eric Rivera, a very funny model minority. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Hi. It seems it seems very somber. It seems very <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I felt like we were about to like read my eulogy or something. Yeah. Just, like this hi. is the end the of this is the end of Eric. Rivera. <laughs> And how you lived a very good life. What what would be in your actually no sorry let's start with let's start with your childhood. Let's not talk about your death. So tell us <laughs> <laughs> tell us a story about your childhood, Eric. Well, I grew up. It's so funny because we were just talking before we started recording, and I grew up in the suburbs because I know Raman said he he's in Connecticut, and I know that area really well. I grew up in New Rochelle. I know. So when you said Greenwich, I was like, oh, I know, I know what that is. Like, I got family in Greenwich, Old Greenwich, Connecticut. So here's the thing: I used to go to Pace University in Manhattan. Oh wow! Oh my God! Can I just here? I am just stopping you. I went to Pace University for nursery school. I literally really? grew up across the street from there. Yeah, that's so yeah. Cool. But see, the reason I went was growing up. We were my mother was very. She's very religious, very strict. Mm -hmm. We went from Jehovah's Witness. And I'm sure everybody knows what they are. They're the people knocking on your door on weekends and bugging you to Pentecostal Christian. So we went from one extreme to the other. So for my mother, it was like, oh, when it came time to go to college, I was like, oh, I'm going to go away. She's like, no, you're not. Even within the <laughs> within the, the, the Latin culture, it's like, no, 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 no. You don't right. go away. What are you talking about? You don't move out till you're married. You're insane. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you're not going away. Like all my friends were like, oh, we're going to Florida. I'm going to Michigan. I'm going California. And that's what I thought I was going to do. And she's like, nope, 
She was like, why don't you go to Iona College, which is right there in my hometown in Rochelle. We were living and my mom's still there literally two blocks away. And her big selling point was, mijo, we can have lunch every day together, (laughs) which (laughs) when you're in college, I don't think that's the selling point to any college. No. So to get back at her and to sort of really stick it to herself, I was like, all right, since I can't go away, I'm going to the city because growing up, I was always told the city was evil. What? The city, yeah, the city, that's where drugs, drugs happened and hookers and murders. You were going to, I was, the way my parents painted it, like me going to college there, I was going to have a hooker and get stabbed and have a Coke problem by the end of it. So how dare I go there? And I, I was literally sort of shunned by a lot of my family that was very religious because they were like, oh, your son is in the evil ways now. We can't, we can't associate with, our kids can't associate with him. Wow. Yeah, wow. so that's why I went to Page University, yeah. <laughs> All right, so I got to ask, Eric, and I'm sure you've had this question asked, and I know the first answer to the question. You know, where are you from? And if New Rochelle is the first answer, and then people kind of offensively ask the second, where are you from? How do you right. answer that? <laughs> well, it's so funny. So I, I don't think I, I don't think I established I'm a stand-up comedian, and I used to have a joke in my act where it was, you get the question, where are you from? And I'd be like, New York. And then you'd get the, as a Latin person, you always get the, but where are you from, from? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always doubled up. And it's so funny because no, white people do not get that question. It's like, where are you from? Oh, here. Where are you from, from? Oh, Michigan. Oh, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're the Worthingtons. Look- yeah. They're looking for that thing that they can sort of, now I'm going to tell you a story about how I went to Cancun. It's like, no, 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 please don't. <laughs> So I, I was born and raised in, in New York, and my parents, my father's Puerto Rican, and my mother is Guatemalan. So if the cultural you're looking for, it's the half Puerto Rican, half Guatemalan, born and raised in, in New York. I don't even know what that means, yeah. is the, the, the two halves. Is there, I don't know, did you hang out with more of a Puerto Rican crowd, more of a Guatemalan crowd, or only the half Puerto Rican, half Guatemalan crowd when you were growing <laughs> there, up? There is, there is not a lot half Puerto Rican, half Guatemalan, so when you meet them. <laughs> Take a picture. Uh, <laughs> growing up, so we grew up in New Rochelle, and at the time, New Rochelle was very—I don't want to say segregated because it's not the right word—but it was—it wasn't as as diverse as it is now. So I grew up sort of trying to always find a way to fit in, and by fitting in, I mean fitting in with the white kids because that's where. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, yeah. You're, you're trying to fit in because for the most part, the Latin kids that were going to the school weren't weren't born and raised here. They had just come over. So they were all in ESL classes, didn't speak English. And not that I didn't speak Spanish, but for me, I, I sort of identified at that point as American because I was born here. Sure. And you watch television, you watch cartoons, you watch kids programming, you watch you watch Saved by the Bell, and every kid wants to be Zach Morris. Nobody wants to be AC Slater, and even AC Slater's not not till the college years where he was like, "Oh, I'm Chicano," and it was like a surprise <laughs> to him. <laughs> so you want to be those kids that fit in. So for the longest time, I was just just always trying to fit in and hang out with the white kids. And also, there was a battle at home because my father, being Puerto Rican. His whole mantra was like, no, no, we're going to fit in. We don't speak Spanish. We're, we're American. Yeah. And my yeah. mother was fighting him head on. No, 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 no. I'm Guatemalan. I'm not going to lose my culture. So these kids are going to speak Spanish. So in second grade when, by the way, my mother found out I wasn't, 
I was fitting in so well. I actually changed my last name from Rivera to Rivers. No way. I did. Oh. I, I I would like just throw the S on it. And she kept <laughs> looking at my homework like, what's going on here? I was like, oh, I was, I was writing fast. I just, I wrote, I wrote it too quick. My A sometimes look like that. And she's like, oh, okay. And she was like, hey, we're going to talk more Spanish in the house. And I was like, no, I'm not talking Spanish. I'm I'm from here. How dare you? And second grade, she was like, all right, fine. Summer vacation, she took me to Guatemala for the full summer vacation. Because at that time- How old were you? I was the second grade. What is that like? Seven, seven, eight, yeah. Eight, yeah. So at that point in Guatemala, no one spoke English. In Puerto Rico, you can get away with it because it's part of America, which a lot of people don't know. So people speak English there. So you go to Puerto Rico, I could still speak English and, and, and get by, but- in Guatemala at the time, especially where my mother was from, this little village, no one spoke English. So she took me to Guatemala for the full summer vacation. And I fought her for two days. I did not speak Spanish. I was like, I'm fine. I'll talk to myself. I'll sing to myself. I'll I'll play and do voices. And, and then by day two, when you start getting hungry, you become fluent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> did you have any, because I, first time I went to India, I was six. And I'd seen my family in England, but Indian people live in amongst white people for the most part. But India, it was like full on just culture shock for me. And you just opened my eyes to what And my, my dad's family lives in the city in New Delhi. And so it was like all the city stuff, big city, but then crazy poverty and then the cow in the street. And just it shook my brain up so much to have that experience at the age of six to the point where I'm talking to my wife about this. Like, I want to take our kid to some country. It doesn't even have to be India or China. It can be, I just need to, that shake up as a little kid almost framed my worldview for the rest of my life. Oh um, yeah. I ate, all, I ate all my food after that trip. Oh yeah. It's crazy because we don't realize like, we're in this bubble in this country where it's like, oh, this is life. And then when you travel outside of it, you go, oh, I thought this was only in movies and television. This is, this is kind of crazy. So I remember going to, to Guatemala and I don't know if you did this, but as a little kid, I remember seeing these kids with no shoes and no clothes. What is it? And they're your age. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, why, why do they not have stuff? And my mother loves to tell the story, but after we started speaking Spanish and just started hanging out with the kids, there was one day she comes back and I come down the street rolling my suitcase and it is empty. And she's like, where's your stuff? And I was like, they, they needed it. Aww. These poor kids didn't have any. I gave it all to them. And she was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> We can go get them stuff, but that's your stuff. And some of that stuff was expensive. And she, one of the kids I I befriended, she was like, hey, listen, I'm going to give you 20 bucks, which was probably the most money that kid has ever seen in one shot. And he's like, please go get his stuff back. And he was like, you got it. And he ran off and collected all my stuff back. And But she was like, she was like, your heart is in a good place. And I loved it. You did that. But she's like, we can help them out and maybe go to the store and get them stuff. But she's like, that's your stuff. You can't give that stuff away. Did you go back as you got older or was it like a one and done as a kid? So I went back, I went when I was eight and then I went again while I was in high school, maybe like 16, 17, but I haven't been back since. I definitely do want to go now that I I have two kids. I've got a seven-year-old and a three-year-old and it's something I would like for them to see, especially with everything going on and we're raising them in, in Los Angeles. They go to this school, which I hate to say, I look at the similarities between me and them and my seven-year-old, he's in a first grade class. And I think this might be another person of color in his class. And I'm looking at him like, yeah, man, (laughs) it's going to come a point where you start realizing you're not the same. And I want to take you to sort of open up your eyes before that happens. Yeah. It's like the first place where we raised our daughter, 
it was a different, I mean, nearby, but a different town where there were mixed kids, there were black kids, there were Hispanic kids. And now my daughter is kind of the token right? <laughs> brown kid in the classroom. And it's, it's fine because to your point, you'll fit in, you'll assimilate, et cetera. But I don't know. It just, it just creates a different context and a framework. And I, I think a lot about that now as I walk on the streets of the mean streets of Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think as a parent, you, you're constantly worried about that. And it's so crazy because they, they have no idea. They're so oblivious to everything happening. My kid now just started asking questions which blew my mind. I was like, at seven, I don't even think I was asking these kind of questions at seven because they did Black History Month at their school. And he was learning about like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. And he was telling us about it. And he's like, you know, they were doing this because things were unfair. And then out of nowhere, he was just like, what color am I? And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Because he's starting to realize I'm not. What did you tell him? I was like, man, you're, we're brown. And he, the next question that he hit me was like, so where would we have sat on the bus? And I was like, oh boy. Oh, that is a good question. And yeah. And it was like one of those things like, man, we would have been sitting on that, the back of that bus. And he was like, oh, that's not fair. And I was like, no. And I was like, do you, do you have any more questions about that? Like, how does that make you feel? And as a kid, it's so funny because they, they have these moments of clarity where it's like, let me hit you with this deep question. And then right. you're like, anything else? And, Can I have ice cream? And you're like, wait, hold up, <laughs> hold up. Okay. Rewind. Like we were in something. <laughs> Three weeks ago. So this podcast, when are we recording? It's like middle of June. Three or four weeks ago, my wife, daughter, and I were driving around and I might've been driving fast. And so my wife was like, hey, slow down. You don't want to get pulled over by a cop. Just don't get a ticket. And my daughter's listening to everything. And she asked, why? And she's asking, oh, well, the cops, they pull up. How do they pull you over? Oh, they light up their lights and all that stuff. And that was three or four weeks ago, call it before. And she stuff sticks in her mind. And she's been asking about police a lot more. And I think it's literally because of what happened three weeks ago, because she's not watching the news. She occasionally hears her mom and dad talking about it. But now she's asking about police all the time, but it's in this different context of what the world is. And it's, it's just this, and to your point, and then like two seconds later, it's like, can I have ice cream? I'm like, what? Right. <laughs> right. I don't know, Sharon, what's going on? I, I have to ask, like, because you're kind of in the thick of it in the city. Yeah. It's, how are your kids absorbing it? They are, I think, so Eric, I have, I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. Every time they age up, I'm like, wait, are they really that big now? They're that big now. Right. <laughs> and... It's funny because we don't live in the middle of Manhattan, so we're not totally in the middle of everything, but there are protests that end up happening kind of on the main street, and we live low enough in our building that when the windows are open, you can hear everything. So they've been hearing people chanting Black Lives Matter, and they've been seeing the, like literally sometimes it's like a parade of policemen following the protests. So it's always this moment that I have when people come down our block when I'm like, okay, this could go really well, meaning totally peaceful, not a problem. Or if the sirens go on, then like, I almost don't want my children to see that, you know, whatever that might be happening. But the other day we we heard people chanting Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And my six-year-old said, mommy, do you hear that? My life matters. Oh, wow. And it was this moment where I was like, I'm going to start to cry. But yeah, of course it does. But the fact that this is even happening and the way that they're receiving that information, I mean, he completely, it was just like such a, such a innocent statement because he was just kind of repeating back what he had heard without a lot of context. And it, it kind of breaks my heart that, that we're even in a place where 
you know, we're still as adults processing what that means. So it's, it's really interesting. It's just really interesting time. So Eric, in your life, how are you, how are you similar to that little kid in Guatemala who emptied out his suitcase? And and then maybe even what do you see in your kids? That's kind of like that. Well, I think that I'm still, if you look at that little kid in Guatemala, like he saw that things weren't right. And he was, I guess, trying to fix it the way he could. I still, to this day, still try to do that in the sense of like, you know, just being in comedy and entertainment. Like I see the we constantly hear about like representation and stuff. And for my kids, I try to, from what I do with stand-up comedy and creating shows, I want there to be representation because I know you don't realize how much it affects things. You know, you don't realize how much it affects kids. The fact that your kid heard Black Lives Matters and it affected him to go, oh, wow, my life matters. That's such a strong thing that's gonna, that he's going to grow with. A couple of years ago, we were talking about how I grew up in your shell and I watched Saved by the Bell and I watched all these shows and that molded who I was and trying to assimilate and be who I was. So a couple of years ago, I, I took my son and his cousins who are my wife's side. So we're talking about two, three, three little white girls, right? I take them to go see Coco. I love that movie. Amazing movie. Amazing movie. And the concert, really amazing too. And I take them to go see it. And the three little girls, not so much into it. And no fault of their own. It was, it had some of them were a little scared with the whole concept of going in and seeing dead people, whatever it was. But I'll never forget this moment where, you know, we're watching the movie and we're literally a couple minutes in. And my son turns to me, goes, daddy, he looks just like me. Now, if you thought you bawled when at the end, spoiler alert, with the grandmother, oh no, I was bawling the entire movie to see this little kid just go, he looks, and then he sat at the edge of his seat and did not move as he watched this movie. And as soon as we got out, dad, I want to, I want a red hoodie. I want to play guitar. And he's he's been taking guitar lessons and, 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 and it affected him so much. And like, we don't realize that. We don't realize how much of an effect it has to to these kids that they see themselves on television. They don't see themselves on television. They hear things like Black Lives Matter. They don't hear that. So as our kids age, like I'd, I'd like to have help certain people to get shows on the air or whatever it is, but not necessarily my own show, but I really, I take that representation matters thing to heart. And I created a show out here that, at the Laugh Factory called Brownish, where it's I get to highlight and spotlight Latin stand-up comedians. Now, I get nothing out of it. If somebody comes and sees this comic and they develop something with them, more power to them. Because if they win, then I win. Because now there's a show on television rising, where rising I can watch tide, my, right? yeah, where I can watch my with my kids and my family and go, look at that. That's us, guys. We're, we're being seen on television. So I still fight that fight to this day. Is that the win? Is that success? It's just getting... I think, yeah, I think, I think, I think the win, I think the win is just more representation. Anytime a show comes out, I have a platform. It's not the biggest platform, but if I can help spread the word on that platform to have more eyeballs on it, then so be it. I feel like a lot of times we comedians are just focused on their own lane. It's like, no, no, I have to, I have to succeed. And yeah, that's great that you think like that. We all have that dream that we're trying to chase, but at the same time, if nobody succeeds, then there's no representation and that's going to affect future generations. I look at constantly every election period. They talk about Latinos don't vote. Latinos need to come out and vote. And 
this all ties into representation and everything, because if we don't see ourselves being a part of this country, then a lot of Latinos take the attitude of, well, I'm not from here, so who cares? If you don't see a family on television that's part of society, then why am I going to vote for a country? Why am I going to vote and go out and try to make changes if I'm not even on, on television? You don't feel ownership of it, right? Right. No. I think that's what a lot of Latinos feel in this country. They don't feel like they're accepted. They don't feel like they're part of anything. We're so divided and it's crazy. I stay up thinking about that for my kids and they have no idea. In their heads, they're like, everything is great and we're in school and almost oblivious to it. But like, as they get older, those things are going to happen. There's going to come a time where my kid, I don't know how many years down the road, will get pulled over and treated differently. He'll be treated differently because of the color of his skin. His grandparents live in Western Maryland and they love him and they accept him and his family accepts him. Who knows? Maybe one day he's walking down the street and somebody's going to say something to him. So it becomes a thing where little by little, they're both going to be pushed. And I'd never want them to hit that point where they go, well, I'm not part of this country. So who cares? The apathy, right? You don't want the apathy to put in. I want to come back to being a kid because it sounded like Dad wanted you to assimilate. Mm-hmm. Mom wanted you to hold on to the culture. And you kind of muddled through. <laughs> you threaded that needle. What did they want you to be? Or, yeah, what, what did mom and dad want you to be? And then we know what you became. How do they, how do they view that decision? Well, I think in the beginning, I think anytime you have immigrant parents, they, they're constantly trying to like, oh, you can be doctor, lawyer, whatever it is. And then my mother started working with older white people. She, she does home care for the elderly. And I think as she was exposed to more people and different job opportunities, then she started, like, I remember one time she came home, she goes, hey, you're going to be a stockbroker. And I was like, what? Yeah, mind you, I'm seven. I have no idea what a stockbroker is. Like, well, Westchester, New York, there's a lot of them up here. Yeah, yeah you're going to be a stockbroker. I was like, what, what's that? She goes, they make a lot of money. Like, that's all I remember her telling me. Like, don't worry, they make a lot of money. You go to school, figure out what that is. But that's what I heard. And they make a lot of money. That's what you're going to be. So that was in the beginning. Then, like I said, we went through the the religious phases. And then at one point, she's like, you, you, you're going to be a great pastor. You're going to be a preacher. That's what you're going to be. I wanted to be neither one of those things. So again, going back to the college thing, another college we looked at was Nyack College in Nyack, New York, which is a, a Christian school. And I remember her, she went and got the application and she was pushing for me to go to that school or Iona. So far as that she went to the school and had them, they, they waived the application fees. I don't know what she told them. I don't know what she did, but somehow they were like, just send in the application and you'll be going to NIAC. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So end up going to Pace University. At the time, I had no idea what I was going to do. So I did what I think every entertainer does. I went to the communications program because I saw the the pamphlet and there was a guy pointing TV camera, another dude with a a microphone, and then Asian kid on the on the soundboard. And I was like, "That yeah, look, I'm I'm the guy with the microphone. <laughs> look, the, the black guy's doing the camera. This is great. Hey, representation. It worked in the brochure. <laughs> exactly. Maybe you so know, much, maybe you didn't see it on TV. So yeah. much diversity in that photo." So I I do the communications program and I felt like this was my mother praying and she's always, always, I've always said jokingly, she's got an in with God because at that point the the guidance counselor was like, hey, if you really want to get the best out of the communications program, you have to go to the other campus, which is in in Pleasantville, New York. 
And I was like, no, y'all are trying to send me back to back to close to home. I'm not going there. I'm staying right here. So the communications program in the city was horrible. They had nothing. Pleasantville had just built this brand new campus. They built this brand new TV studio. They were legit trying to make it a legit communications program, whereas the New York campus is, is more of a business school. So they weren't really focused on communication. So I slowly started getting internships, trying to figure out what I was going to do. I still had no idea what I was doing. I went to a music internship. I went to, I think it was Universal Music. And I remember sitting with one of the guys there and I was like, hey, I think I want to do, I want to learn Universal Music. Like I want to learn the behind the scenes stuff. And he pretty much was like, don't do it. He's like, we're getting hammered by the internet. LimeWire, Napster. He goes, there's no money. We're going to be gone in no time. You don't want to do this. And I was like, get out, get out while you can. Yeah, so it, was like, it was one of those things where I was like, well, I feel defeated. Like now what am I going to do? I ended up getting an internship with this small band that was from New York, based in New York, and going around with them going to, and I was learning like the grassroots of how they were doing when they were marketing, going to concerts with them. And I would see their guys, they had almost like a street team that would hand out flyers and and singles and sort of get the word out on them. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I was like, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm going to do this. And it didn't happen till 9-11. Like everything just gets shut down. Our, our campus gets shut down. And they're using it as yeah, triage. Yeah. And we lose that whole semester. And I remember coming back to school and it was sort of surreal. You see all the soot and stuff on the buildings. These two giant buildings that were there are no longer there. We're watching soldiers and tanks driving down the street, down Park Row, down Broadway. And it's it was like a scene out of a movie almost. And a lot of my friends were transferring out. We had on-site counselors that they were setting up in different student union rooms. And it was it was not good. It was bad. And it was funny because it was like they were constantly telling us, like, no, 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 everything's back to normal as they're all wearing these crazy gas masks. And it's like, is it though? Yeah, yeah no, the, the air is safe to breathe. You guys will be fine. So I remember I was part of the student organization at the time, and they were like, oh, what can we do to sort of bring back some kind of normalcy? They set up some certain programs and meditation, this, that, and the other. And I remember watching on the news, oh, is it too soon to laugh? That was the title of it. And I saw that people were going to comedy clubs. People were going out sort of wanting to not forget, but sort of get their minds off of it. Sort of, they needed that release, that valve to be turned, released, whether for an hour and a half or two hours. So comedy clubs were booming at the time. And I remember pitching it to them. I said, hey, why don't we do a comedy relief show? Sort of hour and a half where students can get their minds off of it because it's around us all the time. It's around us 24-7. There's no way you can't see what's happening. And some of the students were like, no, that's a horrible idea. It's too soon. No one's no one's going to laugh. It's going to be a, a disaster of an event. And the other half were like, no, let's, let's give it a try. So I got them to give me this room. It was like a 200-seater. I was like, let's just see what happens. I reached out to some of the comics in New York. And a lot of them jumped on. They, they were excited to help. They're like, yeah, we'll do it. And when I tell you we had 400 students show up, they were standing outside of the room just trying to listen in. And at that point, I was hooked. I was like, I love stand-up comedy. And by, mind you, at this point, I still didn't know I wanted to do it. I just knew I loved stand-up comedy. Like I saw what it did and how people came out and were so drawn to it. And people were laughing. 
And I just had that whole energy. I just, I just fell in love with the art form that I started going to comedy clubs every night because all the comics, they, they all said the same thing. Like, Hey man, if you ever want to see a show, just let us know. We'll put you on the guest list. And that was it. I was going to comedy clubs every night. Just, I would go to school. As soon as school was done, boom, where can I go? Stand up New York. Comic strip has a show at seven. Oh, I can go to the improv. I can go to Caroline's. Oh, my, my buddy's at Gotham. I'm going to go there. I was just jumping around clubs, watching and consuming as much comedy as I could. And it was just one night. I won't forget it because I was at the comic strip and I, and I remember watching the show. And as soon as the show was done, I was like, I think I can do that. Because it was, it was that moment where I was laughing and enjoying, but I saw how it was done. Hmm. It's almost like I saw the rabbit the in the hat. Form. Yeah, yeah I saw the art form. Yeah. I saw how it was done. I was like, oh, the rabbit's in the hat. I see what he's doing. I can do that. I want to try that. And one of the comics was like, yeah, you just got to do, go to open mic. Just give it a try. See if you even like it. He goes, you might hate it. You might get up on stage and freeze and not like it at all. And I went to this place, Hamburger Harry's in Times Square, which is no longer there. I jumped on stage and that was it. I was hooked. I fell in love and I had never been off stage since. Now, my parents were not thrilled, <laughs> to say the least, because I was doing, I was still going to school, but at night I was doing these open mics now. So they had noticed, because I was going to the shows and now I was doing these open mics, they noticed that my hours were all over the place. Before the open mics, did they know that you were just hopping around to clubs? Or no, they, they, they didn't know I was going to the clubs. They just knew my hours were all crazy because they saw- they All the study groups, so yeah. Yeah, they would see me in the morning at 7 in the morning, 8.30, leaving, and then I wouldn't get home till 2.30 in the morning. And mind you, I had to be back by 2.30 because if you live in New York, there's a train that's the Metro North, and the Metro North has a last train. And it's a local and it sucks. <laughs> it's a local and it sucks. Yeah. And mind you, in college, by the way, this is how, how well I know Connecticut. I used to go out drinking with my friends, which my, my parents hated. Like, oh, look, he's an alcoholic now. But I remember, dude, I would wake up. I've woken up at every stop in Connecticut. Wow. Which is awesome. Because you, miss, you missed your trip. I've, I've woken up in Greenwich, Old Greenwich, Costco, <laughs> Stanford. I've missed, I've gotten all those stops. So they noticed my weird hours. So I remember I, I had just started doing open mics. I was maybe a month in because I was at that point, like I was every night and I would go into the city on the weekends too. And I remember they, I woke up, my mom was like, hey, come on down. We have breakfast. I said, all right, cool. I get down and her and my father sitting at the table. There is no breakfast. I would lie to. Yeah. <laughs> and my mother just, she's like, I could tell she was crying. And I was like, what's up? And she was like, I want you to be honest with me. Are you doing the, the drugs? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I was like, no, what are you talking about? And she goes, you're coming in at all these weird hours. Are you you're doing the drugs? And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm doing stand-up comedy. And I think at that point, she would have rather me say I was doing drugs because she could have put me in intervention or she could have put me in rehab because there is no rehab for comedy. And she was like, what do you mean you're doing comedy? And it just became this whole thing where I was like, look, this is, I think this is what I want to do. And she was like, no, 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 you're going to school. You're going to get your degree. You're going to, you're going to be something. Don't, you're not going to, to be a clown. What's wrong with you? Because in Guatemala, stand-up comedy is not an art form. Yeah, like there's, they, not a frame, there's not a frame of reference. Yeah, there, there is no Jerry Seinfeld of Guatemala. Right. If you go to Guatemala, there is, yeah, they don't have that frame of reference. So the closest they can as, associate that to is like, oh, so you're, 
So what do you do? You do birthday parties as a clown? You balloon animals? That's what you do? Like, no, no, no. I get up on stage. I tell stories. I make people laugh. She goes, yeah, that's what clowns do. And she was sort of let down by it. And I, I told her, look, just give me a year. If I'm not good at this, I go back to school. Because at that point, I was like, look, I'm not getting anything out of school. I'm, I'm barely paying attention because all I'm thinking about is getting out and going to do these shows. I, let me put, it, put this on pause. Let me see if I'm any good at it. Give me a year. If I don't see any kind of forward movement on this, I go back to school. And she begrudgingly accepted the terms. She goes, you got a year. What does and, that look like? Is it you're featuring, you can you got a regular set? What in your mom's eyes would have been good enough in one year at that moment, you think? I think for her, it's I'm not just wasting my money doing these open mics. And by the way, she still has no concept of what comedy is or what pay is. But I think for her, it's like, because she came out to see me after a year. I think for her, it was like, I'm going to see you. And if you're awful and just making an ass out of yourself, you're done. If you're not getting a laugh, so you're done. I think that's what she went into at that performance thinking. If he doesn't get the laugh, I'm done. So for that year, I just worked on my set. I was doing open mics every night. I was taking it serious. I was talking to comedians and networking. That always blows my mind too when I see new comics. We have so many comics out there who are just ready to talk. Like you take one out to lunch, pick his brain, like figure it out. And that's what I was doing. I was like, hey, can I take you out for lunch? And a lot of the comics were like, yeah, sure. And it was just me asking questions and trying to figure it out. And after the year, and by the way, that year was the toughest year of my life at home because my mother was giving me the silent treatment. I had broken her heart that I was now doing comedy and not going to be the stockbroker or preacher or doctor or lawyer she thought I was going to be. Yeah. So the support network is kind of begrudgingly there, right? Yeah. My father had to support her in public. Now, my father was a big, he loved stand-up comedy. He loved Pryor, Eddie <laughs> Murphy, Carlin. I remember when my mother used to work nights, he would crack open a beer. Hey, do you want to watch this? Just don't tell your mother. And he would let me watch these specials. So he was a comedy fan, but he couldn't publicly say it because he had to back up my mother on this. Yeah, you got to hold the party line. So any t- yeah, so anytime my mother was around, we can't believe you. You're embarrassing us. How could you do that? As soon as she w- left the room, how is it? What did you do last night? Where were you? <laughs> the comics, he was excited. So after a year, I get on. So one of the comics that I had booked at Pace University for one of the relief shows, Brian Kennedy, he was running the new talent nights over at Caroline's. And he booked me on the show. He's like, hey, you should do this show. We get a great audience. And it's a mixture of young comics and veterans. And I was like, perfect. It's Caroline's on Broadway. At that point, it's like, it's a great, it's the club. As a young comic, there's there's certain clubs that you hold as meccas. And Caroline's is one of those clubs. And I invite my mother out. And it was a great show to bring her out to because I think now she's got a barometer. She's got a barometer of new talent and veterans. So she can see where I fit in on this scale. And she sat there. She was not front row, but towards the front. So I could see her judgmental eyes. (laughs) And she watched the whole show. And this is new talent. So she got to see people that were awful. Yeah, starting out. First open mic. And she got to see people that were great. And I had a good set. So she got to see where I was fitting in on this. And... I know she did not want to, but she gives me her blessing that night. She goes, listen, 
you're good. You're funny. You got laughs. And she told me, look, if you're going to do this, do this. Don't half-ass this. She goes, we have a lot of people in our family that always say they're going to do this and the other, and they don't do it. So if you're going to do this, do it 100%, and I'll always back you. But if you, in a couple of years, quit and give up and because it's too hard, then I'm going to be disappointed. And I was like, you got it. I was like, that's all I need. If you're going to support me, I'm, I'm going to do this 100%. And now she's my biggest fan. She comes to shows. She tells everyone about me. Like I remember when you first start, you, you go and you get those Vistaprint cards, the Vistaprint yeah. ad on the back. <laughs> Somehow she found a box of those and she would hand them out to people around town. Uh, This is my son. He's a comedian. Go check him out. And like she became my street team. (laughs) I love that. And when I go visit her, people, when I go visit her, people come up to like Eric Rivera. I'm like, what? Your mom. (laughs) And they showed me the Vincent print card. And I was like, oh my God, stop. (laughs) That's great. I love that. I got to ask that first night or even coming up in the clubs in, in year one. Were there other Hispanics on stage? This is early 2000s New York. Were you the only, that night when your mom was in the crowd, were there other black and brown comics on stage? What did she see or what did you experience? That night, I remember a couple people on the lineup. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you. It was a diverse lineup. I couldn't remember because I was so nervous. And I, the whole time, like, I'm just yeah. side stage. I'm looking at her. I'm like, she's right there. I could see her not laughing and just judging every comic. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. But coming up, I think it's gotten better now. Again, back to representation. It's not as diverse as one would like. As far as Latin comics, I feel like there definitely is a lack of them. And a lot of it has to do with you sort of hit a wall in this industry where it's like, ah, you know, I I don't need it. Or they start creating a Latin scene, which is away from the clubs. But my goal was always to do the clubs. So there are some that work the clubs and props to them because I know what the battle is. I know how hard it is. And in New York, you work the clubs and you're funny and you get on the lineup and it's it's sort of like a badge of honor. Now, it gets harder when you move out of New York, coming to LA, it was sort of like a shock to me when I first moved out here. I was like, oh, from New York, I do the clubs. Like, what's up? And there's like, oh yeah, we've got quesadilla Fridays you can do. And it's like, wait, what? Oh, seriously? And it's sort of very segregated out here. The clubs create theme nights to sort of put diverse comics on. So you have refried Fridays, you have chocolate Sundays, which is the longest running show in, in Los Angeles. You have sticky rice Wednesdays, you have these theme nights and it sucks. Cause now again, back to the whole, no, we're all one. We're all, we're all family here, but you can only do this night. Because we're we're gonna keep you separate, so it becomes this it, this battle. So I get why there's sometimes a lack of Latin comics because it's you don't want to keep jumping through hoops to prove yourself to people. It's a lot of them just go off and retire and call it a day. Wow, what's interesting about that to me is I think about comics that stand out to me, and I think what's interesting about being a comedian is, and you tell me, but when we talk about the art form. The funniest comics are the ones that tell the deepest truths. And the comics that I can relate to are usually the Asian comics, right? So Ali Wong, I love her. Ronnie Chang, so hilarious because they're telling stories that are about their firsthand experience. They're often talking about culture, race, their own personal experiences and how they see the world. And 
I guess I sort of, I mean, I can, I can totally. So you're going to Sticky Rice Wednesday, Sharon? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of looking at it from both angles. Like from a marketing perspective, I think, great, Sticky Rice Wednesdays makes a lot of sense because this is how we're going to sell the most tickets to the most, you know, or to one type of population. And we know for sure that like these kinds of people are going to like these kinds of comedians. And I guess for you, one question I have for you, Eric, is like when you're thinking about the material that you're about to perform or when you when you know you've booked a show at like some mainstream place where there's just going to be like all colors of the rainbow in the audience, where like how do you come at it as a person of color? Well, I think two things. So first, I think when it comes to just mainstream, I don't I never go, oh, I have to change this up for them. And I, you know, I've performed in 45 out of the 50 states. And I've never gone, oh, I have to change this wording or change this for the audience to make it easier for them to understand, or I can't say this in front of them. My story is my story. So my job as a comedian is to make it relatable to everybody. That's why when when people come up to me after shows and go, oh, my friends tell me I should be a comedian. I'm like, that means you're the funny one in the group. And that's great. But now this is the this is the thing you have to challenge, you have to take if you want to do stand-up comedy. You have to make a room full of strangers laugh. That's what stand-up comedy is. I'm going to take these funny stories and now I have to get strangers to jump on board without knowing the inside jokes and our little nuances as a group and get them to laugh. Now, you're talking about Ali Wong and how relatable she is and she's telling the stories. But it's crazy that, you know, these are all funny comics, by the way. I, I hate that now people are aware of the comedians that you've named, but back in the 90s, other than Margaret Cho, could you, if I would have offered you $5 million, could you have named three Asian comedians? No, not at all. You're so no. right about that. Mm-mm. So that's why I, I get how Sticky Rice Wednesdays or Refried Fridays can be a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. Like it's a good thing because it's like, hey, We're going to target the audience and this is what you guys are going to get into. But if you look at someone like Ali Wong or Joe Coy or Ronnie Chang, they're not just playing to Asian audiences. Exactly. And that's why they get big because it's it's the Black Panther effect, right? People used to think like you could only have a movie about a black superhero only for black people. But what made it a big movie wasn't that. It was that it went hyper specific. But people who weren't black liked it. People who aren't Asian like Ronnie Chang, et cetera. Yeah. That's why Crazy Rich Asians did so great. It was a love story. It had nothing to do. It wasn't like, uh, if you're not Asian, you're not going to get this. I want to be clear. Always Be My Maybe is the better Asian love story movie. Oh, always. <laughs> Ready? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an embarrassing <laughs> confession here. Always Be My Maybe. And then there was Oh, no, no. What's what's the last one that just came out? There's one on Netflix that just came out about a little girl. She's taking care of her dad at this small town, and she befriends this guy. To Not Kim's Convenience. You're talking about a movie, right? Not I'm a- talking about a movie. Yeah, she befriends this guy and sort of like helps him. It's almost like Roxanne. Like she she yeah. writes love letters for him. Uh, anyway, so they in the movie she's constantly drinking this little yogurt drink. And I saw it at the store. I got so excited. I bought it. And my wife's like, what? I was like, they got me. I want to know what it is. I'm so excited. Because that's the goal. That's how we solve racism. I sell you more yogurt. 
little by little. But no, so it sucks that they think that that's the only way that they can sell this product and not realizing like, no, we're, we're such a melting pot. Like you have to just put the product out and believe in the product. Ali Wong is funny. Whether you're Asian or not, she's funny. Joe Coy is funny. Whether you're Asian or not, he's funny. Same thing with the Latin comics. Like, that's why, so Brownish at the Laugh Factory, right? For the longest time, they had their Latino Monday night show. And they reached out to me numerous times, like, hey, we want to bring back Latino night. And I found it crazy that Los Angeles, it's Los Angeles. It's a large Latino population. And there was no Latino nights in Los Angeles. Not at the improv. They used to have one. That was the Refried Fridays. And then it's no more. Latino nights, uh, Monday nights at the Laugh Factory, it was like Caliente Mondays. And then the comedy store didn't have one. And they kept reaching out to me like, oh, we want we want to do this. We want to do this. We want to do this with you. So I kept turning them down because same thing. I was like, I was trying to fight that so hard. Like, no, I don't want to be boxed in. I don't want to be just subjected to this night. I can perform every night. And then finally just sitting there and thinking about it and going back to trying to help with the representation, I was like, all right, fine, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it on my own terms. So that's why I created Brownish because I was like, number one, we're going to get rid of the whole refried thing because not every Latino is refried. Not every Latino is Mexican. Not every Latino, like we come in all different shades. Second, I'm going to, I want to revamp the lineups. I want to change the, the the wording that you guys have on the website. So I was like, I'm going to create this platform to, to highlight all this, to highlight all the differences and get a different audience in here. You know, you, you hear brownish. It's not, you don't automatically, oh, it's Latino night. That's not for me. Cause trust me, I've, I've fought that where I'm touring the country and I get to the club and there's caliente on my flyer, or there's a sombrero and jalapeno peppers and maracas. And I'm like, why are you guys doing that? Cause now you're sort of turning off the audience. Like if you saw an Ali Wong poster and you saw chopsticks and, and dragons and stuff, you'd be like, why are they doing that to her? Like she's, She's hilarious. Like she shouldn't, you shouldn't do that and sort of. You don't, need, you, don't, you don't need the gimmick. You don't need the gimmick. Yeah. You don't need the gimmick. So, and trust me, it was a fight. I had a friend call me like, Hey, have you read the website? And it was like Spanglish and just like gimmicky. And I was like, no, no, we're taking that down. We're, we're changing the narrative. And that's, that's, that's what the fight is. It's like, you have to, we have a good product. Like George Lopez is a funny comic. You don't need to gimmick him up. Gabriel Iglesias is another guy who, towards the country, towards the world. But you, they, like the industry constantly like, oh, how do we, how can we sell this? Let's put tacos in his hand. Like, no, you don't need that. Let the work speak for itself. But th- the problem we're having is, as a culture is we're not giving, we're not being given those shots. We're not being given those opportunities to showcase our shows. You know, like you, you, you constantly hear on, Oh, th- these shows were sold for television, but they're never made. So yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's it's just a constant like a circular fight of oh, we need representation. All right, here it comes. No, we don't like it. We we need more. And it's like, when are we going to be given that at bat? Yeah, yeah. I think I know what movie you were talking about. By the way, like as you're talking, I was like, what is the name of that movie? Is it To All the Boys I Loved Before? No, oh. you know what? Now you now you're gonna look this up. <laughs> But that was it. That was a good movie too. <laughs> I feel like they drink that yogurt drink in that movie. <laughs> I th- yeah, no, I think they do too. I, uh, but the, the movie that finally got me to do it was. Hold on, I'm looking it up now. But go ahead, ask your next question. Well, no, I, I, that's we kind of know 
what the Asian ones are, right? Those Asian movies that just tell a good love story. Even there's a new Netflix show on TV, I mentioned a couple times on the podcast, Never Have I Ever, it's the most accurate depiction of Indian Americans in this country, right? I don't know what that is for the Latin community. And again, I know you're not a monolith. It's because Puerto Rican experience is very different from the Mexican, from the Guatemalan, et cetera, experience. And yeah, what is... Does that exist? I mean, all I've got is John Leguizamo's like Latin history for morons. I don't know what what is that? Like what's the Black Panther for you guys right now? Well, see, I think that's I think that's the big problem with Hollywood. All right, so you and I were talking about how we've sort of assimilated and and grown up a certain way and you're raising your kids in Connecticut, I'm raising my kids in in Los Angeles and and the the Latin community there's a lot of those people who have been born here and are assimilating and being that way. But for some reason, Hollywood, when they do the shows, finally, they, they pander. A big note I've always gotten when I go in and pitch a show. Wait, hold So does the mother have an accent? Because that's the only way they understand it. It's the and, trope, right. And what happens then is the Latin community, they'll see that. And they don't buy into the show because we as a community have never gotten our blackish. We've never gotten our. Yeah, I don't think co- it's been done yet. It hasn't we've been never, done. Yeah, we've never done our Cosby show. We've never done our Everybody Loves Raymonds. We've never even had our cheers or friends. It's constantly got to be some kind of, oh, neighborhood's getting gentrified. Uh-oh, we got to save and insert whatever store here. You know, it's always got to be some kind of ongoing running, oh, he's undocumented joke. It can never just be a show about a family. and That happens to be, yeah. That happens to be Latin and not be an issue about their Latinness. Like I'm pitching a show now and it's a family show and it's like one of the notes we got already was like, but wait, what kind of Latin are they? Are they going to, are they going to get into that? And it's like, well, why do we have to? Why not just make, the funniest possible show, A, showing the representation, and B, why do we have, because is that the only way white America is going to understand the show? No, I think we just make the show and people buy in. Yeah, and, and if you if the story takes you there, you'll do it, but do it in service of the story and the characters, not checking the boxes. Yeah. Well, oh, I want to watch that show. Like, seriously, yeah. I do, because it's like, and this is why we do the show, right? I'm genuinely curious about the cultures I don't fully understand. And I think pop culture is a very good way to do that. Or just conversations with people is a very good way to bring some of that to life. And yeah, these shows need to be made. These conversations need to be heard. Yeah, yeah I, I, I always jokingly say, white people get to make awful shows. <laughs> why can't why, we? Why can't we? I can make an awful show. I watch awful movies all the time. And I'm like, why? Why can't we make awful movies? I would love to make an awful movie or an awful show, but it's always got to be, when you're a person of color, your show has to be perfect. It's got to, it can't have any cracks in it. Yeah, you know, I've seen so many shows on network where I'm like, that doesn't even make sense, but that's, that's okay. Oh, all right. I guess that's what we're doing. <laughs> that's so funny. All right. I'm, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your personal life. You've mentioned your kids. Did you marry somebody who's a Latina? No, she is a, she is a white woman from Ooh. Maryland. And how did your parents feel about that when you first brought her home? I jokingly always say my dad was excited because he, he was. <laughs> <laughs> my mother, 
she was, I think at the end of it, she, she's, she's happy that I found somebody that I love. But in the beginning, she was sort of upset because in her head, she thought I was going to marry this good little Christian girl that she had already picked out for me at church. And I was like, no, not going to happen. This is, this is who I'm marrying. So, and I had parts of my family like, oh, he thinks I got that whole, oh, he thinks he's too good now. Look at him. He's, he's got a white woman. Oh, he thinks he's, oh, he thinks he's fancy. And it's, wow. Okay. No, I didn't, I didn't say all that. I just found somebody I love. (laughs) Yeah. And how did her family react to you? Her family, her parents, they're adorable. I love my in-laws. And it was funny because I think we were talking about it before the show, like how during this whole movement, we're seeing people sort of be educated, sort of have their bubble burst of how things work. I hate that, especially on social media, we see it all the time where people just start cussing at each other and yelling at each other. And it's like, you you can't jump to that right away because some people just don't know any better. And that's, that's where my in-laws kind of were. They didn't know any better because they've never really been around Latinos. So one of the jokes I had in my act was how first time I meet my mother-in-law, she comes out super excited because she had found this guacamole dish at the Hobby Lobby. And when you press the button, the Mexican hat dance comes on and it opens up and that's where you put the guacamole and the chips go in the sombrero. Like it was the the greatest thing she had ever found. And I could have easily taken that like this, this is bastard. <laughs> but she did it from a place of love. She didn't know any better. And it's so funny now, like that we've been married for so long and now she's got the grandkids. I think she's, that bubble has been burst for her where she sees a lot of these injustices. And same thing with my father-in-law. Like, so my father-in-law was a strict Republican. Like I remember when I first started dating my wife, we were going to go visit them. And she goes, hey, whatever you do, do not bring up politics because that divides the house. You don't want to bring up politics. And now I have a father-in-law who has said vocally, like, the Republican Party is a mess right now, and I'm, I'm voting Democrat. I don't care who it is at this point. There needs to be changes. I don't like what's happening with people of color. I don't like the way this the country is being handled. I don't like this. I don't like that. And it's like, oh, okay. And again, that's just you know, you grow up a certain way, you're in this bubble, you don't know any better, you, oh, police are our friends. Well, I don't know why people are complaining. It's not that bad. This is the greatest country ever. And then that bubble gets burst and they go, oh, no, 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 no. No, there definitely needs to be change. But don't get me wrong, there are pockets of her family that still feel that certain way because it's still in their bubbles. And whenever I'm around, they just, they speak in hushed tones because they know I'm not one that's going to hold back. Well, it's until you're, I hate to say, until you have some direct experience or confrontation and it's a lot of what we're hearing right now it's like do you have a black it's not go have a token black friend or a token hispanic friend but are you seeking friends that have different experiences or right. different backgrounds from you because how can you have empathy if you don't know those people yeah if you're if your little bubble is just in maryland it's in the, the backwoods it's you can be in a pocket of just all white people and you guys all think the same and that's and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You just don't know any better because you've never been outside of that bubble. You don't travel. It's this is the world. We're all happy and the cops but, are but our friends know. and everything is great. And uh oh, somebody of color just walked in. We have to watch them because we've 
heard the narrative on the news or we've heard the narrative on social media. So they're, they're not good people. I don't chalk it up to, oh, that person is racist. I just chalk it up to, they don't know better. That's yeah. it. Well, yeah, but I, I flipped that a little bit, only slightly because you know, I grew up in the South, met my wife in the Midwest. And I do think on the coasts, we, we live in a bit of a bubble too. And it's, and I think when these terrible things happen, our bubble is burst because I, I genuinely, I feel safe and comfortable in my nice little blue bubble. And I have to explain to some of my friends from here, from the city, born and raised. I'm not, I'm not just talking about you, Sharon, but it's like there's a whole nother world of people who have these beliefs. And you need to understand why they're coming from it because they're not exposed to it. People in LA or New York or Chicago. I'm not making a both sides argument by no means, but it's just like I can understand why people are are ignorant or why they don't know better. Yeah, but well, that's why I always say like on on social media because like I, I see people just battle left and right. I'm like, don't I, don't battle right away. Suss it out first. Figure it out because this could be a moment where that you have this open conversation, and your both bubbles could be burst and go, oh, because same thing. Like I have people. I lived in New York. Now I live in L.A. and I've encountered people here who have their little bubbles of we live in this city. Everybody accepts everybody. Can you believe? What's happening in in this part of the country? Yeah, I've traveled. I've I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> there was a really good study. I think MIT did it in Boston, and you had these super woke progressive people who you you know yeah why can't we all just get along? Isn't that the world the way the world works? And what the researchers did, but they you know they went from like one super posh neighborhood to the next super posh part of town to work in, and then what they did on specific commutes is they started filling the trains with people of different ethnicities and they just kind of surveyed the beliefs before and after. And it just shows when you go out of, again, even it was just very interesting to see that anyone's beliefs and opinions can be manipulated and not manipulated. It's the wrong word, but influenced influenced. Yeah. Yeah. I got to dig up the link to that study. I'll try. By the way, the, the name of the movie is called the half of it. <laughs> oh, so I, have not, I have not seen that movie. I will. I'll make a note of it. The half of it. It's like a teenage rom-com. Got it. I was told, I totally thought it was the other one. <laughs> All right. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I think it's probably time for us to go into the next part of this, which would be speed round. Okay. Are you ready for the speed round? I'm ready. I, would, <laughs> I don't think I was warned about a speed round, but let's do it. All right. Here we go. It's anything what? but. <laughs> I know this this first one usually takes a little while, but let's see let's let's see what you give us. So, what's one thing about you that nobody expects? One thing about me that nobody expects. Wow. The obvious one is I want to say my height because people see me on online and then they see me on stage and it's always a comment I get like, "Wow, you're a lot shorter than I thought." And I'm like, oh. "All right." <laughs> How tall are you? I'm five six and a half. You know, I'm sure when I use the half, when you use fractions, <laughs> you're short. But yeah, that's usually the obvious one where people go, ugh, I didn't, I didn't, yeah. On stage, you look tall. I'm like, yeah, I'm on stage. Uh, <laughs> I'm literally uh, like above you. Yeah. <laughs> so the next question is, and we've covered a lot of ground on this one, but like, what's like a book, a movie or a film that has characters that you relate to? I'll kick it back to this because this is the first time, you know, like I, I said with my son when he saw Coco, was like, oh my God, that's me. The first time I saw myself. John Leguizamo's one-man show called Mambo Mouth. So I used to watch with my with my father. We'd watch those stand-up specials, Eddie Murphy's Raw, Delirious, Prior, Live on the Sunset Strip. Like 
I got to see all of those. And mind you, at that age, now that I'm a parent, I'm like, why would you let me watch this? This is bad parenting. But I'm grateful he did. I feel like it's sort of helped me be the person I am today. But I remember family coming over. Every weekend, family would come over, whether it was a big fight or a big special. And it was we were going to watch this guy, John Leguizamo Mamba Mouth. And no one really knew who he was, but we knew. I, think, I guess my parents or my, my dad and his brothers knew that he was Latin, so we're going to watch him. And a lot of jokes go over my head. I'm a kid. But he does this one character, which I remember laughing about because it was the first thing I could sort of relate to at that point. I was a little older, so he he does this character called Loco, who talks about his first sexual experience, right? And it's just over the top, ridiculous. But I remember watching it, hearing my family laughing and remembering looking at him like he sort of looks like me. It sort of blows your mind because it's like the first time you see you on screen. Like I grown up watching specials, but never seen anybody of my skin tone, of my culture, throwing in Spanglish words, throwing in foods that I eat and knowing all these references. That's great. Speaking of foods that you eat, what's your favorite mom dish? Oh, favorite mom dish. Anytime we go back east to go visit, it's rice and beans. It's arroz con gandules. It's like a, a Puerto Rican style rice, yellow rice with chickpeas and beans and olives. You cannot get that out here in LA. I have not found one that even comes close. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. What's your least favorite food? Least favorite food? Well, I don't eat eggs. I'm not a breakfast person, so I hate when people invite me over for breakfast. I don't like the texture, the smell. It always smells like somebody just farted in the kitchen. But for some (laughs) reason, people keep eating eggs. I don't get it. <laughs> you know what? You and my six-year-old would be best friends because he hates <laughs> eggs too. He gets he gets so upset if I make a boiled egg because boiled eggs are the most potent. And if I crack that open in front of him, he's like, "Mommy." <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like, like so little, pissed off. <laughs> as a little kid, my mom would try to get tried everything, try to cooking in every styles, ketchup, cheese. I just I can't get in. And now we've got two boys. One boy does not like eggs, and I back him up one hundred percent. And the other boy eats eggs, and I'm fine with it. But my wife makes them. I'm just like, ah, I don't, I'm good. And what sucks is if you don't eat eggs and you get invited to breakfast, all other options are straight dessert. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't right. want to eat cake for, for breakfast. breakfast. It's waffle, pancakes, crepes, French toast. It's just you're in a food coma by the end of it. So true. It's so true. Well, there's always yogurt and granola. I know. Uh, no. 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 <laughs> no. All right. That's, that's for a different podcast. <laughs> Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Well, I definitely, you know, I know we just talked about him with Mama Mouth, but John Leguizamo would be one guy, whether interview or just sit down with him. I know he, he's got to know at some, to some degree, how much he's influenced the Latin comedy scene. Like we all, a lot of Latin comics have watched him and he's sort of, open that door for us to know that we can do it. So he's the one guy who's influenced me so much where I'd love to just, just talk to him and let him know how much I appreciate him. You know, I've done a special now on HBO. And for me, that was a, a monumental thing. Cause it was like, he, that's where I saw his one man shows on HBO. So for me, it was just that much more of a trophy. Like, Oh my God, you did your one man show. Now I just did a special and that's amazing. That's great. So last question, Eric, you ready? Let's do it. What does being a model minority mean to you? 
Oh, that's a, that's a heavy question, man. I love that you left that one for the very end. We don't mess around. <laughs> <laughs> I think being a model minority is whatever you make it out to be. You oh, know, come I, on. That no, was no, 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 no. Uh, so this is what I'm saying. Everybody's got a different definition of what a minority is. I think... You know, I have parts of my family who can be militant and it's like they look down on me for, oh, you don't. I actually had a fight with a cousin of mine who sort of called me after watching my special, giving me notes about why he didn't find it funny and how I have disgraced our culture because I didn't speak our language. So to him, that's what a minority means. And I'm not going to knock that. I'm not going to tell him he's got the wrong definition. To him, it's, I'm going to hold on to my culture. I'm going to speak Spanish. I'm going to be this person. And to me, it's a different definition. To me, yeah, I was upset at the time when he told me that, like, how dare he doesn't think that I don't hold on to my culture because I do. What he doesn't realize is to get the special on HBO is a win for me because not only for me financially and like, oh yeah, my own accolades, but now- Anybody, if there is a, a kid at my age who, when I first saw Mama Mouth watching that special, he can go, oh, that's me. Look at that. I do those things too. I was born in this country too. Because sometimes you'll find that if I, if I showed my kids a George Lopez special, they may not find it as funny because they didn't grow up that way. They didn't grow up in poverty. They didn't grow up you know, having to go to Mexico for a month to watch relatives. But they can watch somebody like me and relate more because- I'm talking about like, oh, I love Whole Foods more than I love the grocery store. So for me, that's who I am, but I'm coming at it from the brown perspective. So that's such a loaded question. Like, what does it mean to be a model minority? Because different people have different definitions of what minority is. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's tough, man, because you can't knock people for having their definition. And, you know, they're going to knock me and call me a sellout or they'll knock you for moving to Connecticut. Like, oh, this guy thinks, you know, but that's isn't isn't that what our parents came to this country for to sort of better the situation? They want you to have the better life. And at the end of it, I want my kids to have a better life and to, you know, go on and do great things. So it's, it's weird when like. I get called a coconut or I get called a sellout and I'm like, dude, I think I'm just doing the blueprint of what my parents wanted me to do. So why am I a bad person for that? Like I, I, I'm, I'm just going to be the model minority in that sense of this is what I'm going to do for my kids and hopefully they, they keep it going. Well, Eric, what I like about a lot of the things you said though, is it's not just about the micro. You're playing the macro game too. You're playing the long game for what you want other kids to see, what you want people to experience, what you want to do in the culture. So I think that means a lot for people. And I just really appreciate you just taking us down this journey with you, man. Oh, no, thanks, man. This was, uh, it's got deep, man. (laughs) (laughs) It started off off kind of somber, but it ended up kind of high. It started off somber. uh, (laughs) Then we we were trying to play Guess That Asian Movie. And then we (laughs) wrapped it all up. I loved it. (laughs) All right, man. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it, dude. Oh, no, thank you guys. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. 
You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. She asked, well, what about in Italy? Was, was your friend Stefano gay? And to which I replied, yes. And then she said, well, why was he telling me he likes all those girls from Sex in the City? <laughs> and to which I replied, mom, that's the gayest thing anyone could ever say. <laughs> that's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. 